0: from
1: the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER podcast. My name is Beth Oppenheim and I'm a researcher at the Center for European Reform. We have a bit of a role play today actually because I'm here with Sophia Vesch, your usual host and a research fellow here at the CER. Hi Sophia.
1: Hi Beth. This is so strange, she's hijacked my (laughs) microphone.
0: (laughs) And today I will be talking to her about her recent policy brief with Christian Odendahl, the good European, why Germany's policy ambitions must match its power. So the German political conversation has been more or less engulfed by coalition talks over the past few months. Could you just set the scene for us?
1: Sure. I mean, easier said than done. But I'm going to try to sum up the drama that was German politics over the last six months or so. We did actually write an insight last summer with Christian calling it how to make German politics interesting again. And I guess it's kind of a be careful what you wish for situation now. But yes, so we had German federal elections in the fall of last year where both the CDU, Merkel's Conservative Party, and the Social Democrats got the worst results since World War II. The SPD came to just 20.5% of the the total vote which led to them saying right not another coalition with the Merkel's conservative we're going to go into opposition now. Que an attempt to form a Jamaica government, which was dubbed Jamaica government because of the three parties that tried to go together: the black conservatives, the Greens, and the Yellow Business Party. That didn't work. Talks failed right at the end of last year because the business party walked out. And now the SPD has had a change of mind, at least its leadership did. So under Martin Schulz, the then SPD leader, the party did decide to enter into coalition talks with the conservatives one more time and try and form another grand coalition as the junior partner of the CDU. They have entered into coalition talks, they have written up a coalition paper, and now we're at the deciding moment where the SPD membership, around 460,000 people, will have to ratify that paper. So we will find out on Sunday, I believe, on the 4th of March, whether they agree and whether Merkel and the SPD now under new leadership, Andrea Nahles is the new SPD leader, can go ahead.
0: So it's been very tumultuous, hasn't it? Yes. But now we're entering the final stretch of the talks, it seems that a debate is finally starting to emerge about Germany's role in Europe and what it should be in the future. In the piece, you set out how Germany needs to expand its European agenda to reflect its weight. Could you unpack a bit what you mean by weight?
1: Yes. So, what we thought was really interesting was that when we first started thinking about this pace back in the fall, we were really disappointed by how little Europe featured into the conversations in German politics. There was this sort of status quo focus of Angela Merkel. Her tagline was a country in which we like to live and anything should just go on as it was before. And even Martin Schulz, who, you know, is a European politician who was in Brussels for a long time, didn't really make Europe his top priority. But now, that there have been talks going on, political talks for the last five months or so, Europe does finally feature. And what we mean when we say that it's about time because of Germany's weight, we're talking, of course, about Germany being the largest country in Europe, about Germany's very well-functioning economy at the moment. It sits at the geographic heart of the continent. And yet the government for the last decades has been acting a bit like a small country, a bit like it was trying to be Switzerland or something. And we're in our policy brief saying, that this can no longer go on. We talk about the German conundrum, which many people will know. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has said that Germany is too big for Europe and too small for the world. And of course, the European Union was sort of an attempt to solve that conundrum by embedding the country in the EU's rules and institutions. The EU has managed to sort of channel German power and prevent German dominance after the terrible experiences of the 20th century. And with the American security umbrella sort of completing that structure, Germany has been able to largely tap out of taking responsibility for its own actions. And we see that in the security sphere and in the economic sphere. So Germany has largely outsourced its security to Washington and abstained, literally abstained, for example, in the Libya vote from taking responsibility for European security for a long time. And by coordinating European policy closely with France, it has also refused sort of to acknowledge that its
0: domestic economic
1: policy would also have consequences for its neighbors.
0: So if we turn first to trade then you talk in your piece about how germany needs to bolster its trade policy As we know, the background to this is that Trump is currently pursuing a very protectionist style of trade policy, which is leaving a real vacuum at the heart of global trade. Should and could Germany step into this gap? And if so, what kind of trade policy do you think Germany should push for?
1: Right. So what we argue in this piece is that Germany really needs to think much more strategically about trade. It needs to accept that there is a geopolitical dimension to this policy field. As you say, under Trump, the US has sort of given up on its leadership role there and the role of really setting standards for global trade. And this void, we argue, is a void that the EU can fill and Germany can provide leadership there. It should push for a greater European emphasis on social rights, on environmental protection, on fair taxation and political standards. But it also needs to develop a trade policy that understands and is willing to use the EU's considerable economic pull for its strategic goals, so strategic goals of the EU might be supporting reforms and social standards in its neighborhood through spreading market economics and the rule of law. And then there's also another argument that we make, which is that the US retreat from the Trans-Pacific Partnership from TPP, which was this free trade deal with Asian countries, leaves an opening for the EU in Asia, and that Germany should really push Europe and its Asian partners to explore a larger EU-Asia free trade Trade agreement.
0: We also have the issue of the Eurozone and of course Macron is making some very ambitious proposals about Eurozone reform and leadership is sorely needed in the EU on this front. What could Germany do to strengthen the Eurozone and what are the prospects of Germany taking up Macron's reform proposals?
1: So this is the big question, isn't it? The coalition paper by the conservatives and the social democrats has sort of been framed in Germany as a response to Emmanuel Macron. The coalition paper starts with a chapter on Europe, which a lot has been made of that, Europe before country, if you will. But then if you look a bit more closely and read between the lines, what does it actually say on the key issue, which is the governance of the Eurozone? And when we read it, we find that actually Berlin is still pretty unlikely to support the much-needed needed grander Eurozone reform proposals like debt mutualization or a real sizable common Eurozone budget. There are some people that had hoped that under a social democratic finance minister, which we will end up with, there might be a change in tone in Berlin. And I think that underestimates the large consensus that is still prevalent in Berlin around the economic policy that has been pursued by the conservatives over the last years. So what we try to do in this piece is to say, right, there's no point in sort of Doing another laundry list of all the things that Germany should but never will do. What is ambitious but realistic within the political and economic narratives that are prevalent in Germany? And what we've come up with, what Christian, my, my colleague in Berlin, has argued, is that Germany could agree with and even promote this idea that fiscal policy could do more to lean against the economic cycle at a national level, that Berlin should stop dragging its feet on the banking union, that it should make the capital markets union a political priority, and that above all Germany could really raise investment at home and abroad for example by setting up a public wealth fund and I think it's here that we really see a change in mindset and a change in tone. Germans are sort of experiencing the results of a lack of investment over the last decade or so and I think there's much more willingness now to change that.
0: Of all policy areas arguably migration would be one of the defining policy areas of Merkel's premiership. Germany took a leading role during the migration crisis in 2015, but Germany's stance on refugee relocation was deeply controversial among some of the eastern states like Poland and Hungary. How might Merkel overcome this resistance? Should she forge ahead without them or could she attempt persuasion?
1: Right, so there's really two parts to this question and and two answers. One is the broader migration crisis, if you want the crises that the EU has been experiencing. And of course, as you say, because of Germany's particular role, Germany has to develop a long-term European strategy and sort of take a leadership role within Europe. It should be, we argue, pragmatic about working with countries like Turkey and Libya to stop irregular migration. But it should also lead the way in ensuring that the use of development aid from European countries is coordinated at an EU level. We argue that this is an area where more Europe is really a pretty straightforward step and would lead to a much larger impact. And that European countries, possibly pushed by under the leadership of Berlin, should go beyond just economic assistance. That they could develop a neighborhood policy that sort of ties investment support and development aid and full trade access to EU markets and legal migration routes to clear standards on the rule of law, democracy and social and minority rights. So look at migration, look at trade, look at the promotion of democracy as all interlinked and tackle it from a European point of view. And then the second part of your question is the relationship between Germany and some of the Central and Eastern European states, above all Poland. So the relationship with Poland, the relationship with the Polish government is one of the most challenging relationships that the government in Berlin will have to tackle over the next four years. As you say, the current government disapproves of Germany's handling of the migration crisis, but Warsaw has also been criticizing Berlin for supporting the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And of course the Polish government's clash with the EU over rule of law issues has also sort of put another strain on the relationship with Berlin. There is an opening now, we argue in the brief, and we make a bit more of a detailed recommendation of how Berlin and Warsaw could tackle this relationship. But one point that I just want to stress is that Poland will be looking for Berlin to show that it remains steadfast in its support of NATO's deterrence against Russia. And that reassurances to this effect could really help possibly foster a more constructive bilateral dialogue between Warsaw and Berlin.
0: So, apropos discussions of difficult relationships in the migration context, Turkey, you mentioned before, is an equally problematic partner to Poland and Turkey proved instrumental during the refugee crisis, it took in really large numbers of migrants and refugees, but it remains a difficult partner with a poor record on human rights and democratic values. Are there any incentives that Germany might be able to provide of the ilk that you just described for Poland regarding Russia and security? How might Germany reconcile its desire for cooperation with Turkey and also the need to speak out against its misdemeanors? So we
1: criticize Berlin quite a bit for the approach that it has taken towards Ankara, towards Turkey over the last years. There has been a lot of back and forth and it's been very political from Berlin's side and not very strategic. We do say that the West really cannot afford to cut ties with Turkey altogether, much as perhaps we are uncomfortable with the current leadership's positions. But Turkey is a NATO member with the alliance's second largest army. It's such an important strategic partner for Europe as it has proven in the migration crisis. And ending accession negotiations, which is the sort of all-out threat that is sometimes being bandied around in Berlin and that came up over the summer during the election campaigns, we argue would really completely undermine the influence of pro-European voices in Turkey and would be counterproductive to that effect. What can Europe do then? I think this is a bigger question, but Europe does have both political and economic leverage that it can best use, I think, if it speaks with one voice. So the first mantra here as well is for Berlin to coordinate with its European partners and that it makes sense for Europe to kind of move past the EU accession question and focus on a more pragmatic, more Modern economic partnership between Turkey and Europe. We argue that now might be the right moment to perhaps revive this idea of a privileged partnership for Turkey which Angela Merkel actually has already floated a dozen years or so ago. And that the EU could propose a form of association agreement that uh, incentivizes political reform and offers less than membership but more than the current arrangements in terms of economic integration, aid and political ties.
0: Turkey is a very important strategic partner in the EU's neighbourhood and the EU is facing turbulent times in the neighbourhood. We have seen the resurgence of Russia culminating in the annexation of Crimea, interference in Ukraine, the Arab Spring and the Syrian civil war, the collapse of Libya. We also have the added complexity of a brittle transatlantic relationship. You say the time has come to step up Germany's defence capabilities, but what is the current state of Germany's defences and what is the public mood on this very controversial issue? Well, the
1: current state is dire. There have been quite a few reports recently about just how badly underfunded the Bundeswehr currently is. That is partly a result of the culture of military restraint that came out of Germany's responsibility for two world wars, but it's also just a result of underinvestment. There hasn't been a sustainable strategy for defense investment in Germany for a while. And it's a very unpopular topic, both with the German voters and with German politicians as a result of that. One way that they're trying to tackle it now is to take a more comprehensive look at security and defense. So of course the one metric that European countries have to aspire to have to reach is NATO's two percent metric, the two percent target which is spending two percent of your GDP on defense. Spending more money on defense is an unpopular topic both with German voters and as a result of that with German politicians and we really see that in the debate around the 2% target. NATO's idea that European countries should spend 2% of their GDP on defense. The SPD has really politicized this topic and argued against it. They have said that spending 2% on defense really is kowtowing to President Trump. It's engaging in a sort of arms race. And what they're proposing instead is to link defense spending with development spending, which I think, you know, is not a bad idea. They say that for every Euro spent on defense, there should be a Euro spent on development spending, which might be a way to get through to German voters that Germany has to take more responsibility, but it won't allow them to sort of circumvent the sensitive issue forever. Another way to do that might be to go into the Euro European dimension because it is true that no European country at this point can defend themselves just on a national basis. And it does make sense to collaborate in the development of defense capabilities. And that's what Germany has done over the last two years or so. It's really been at the forefront together with France in developing new EU wide initiatives to collaborate on defense capability development. The problem here is that there is a risk of a sort of Germanization of EU defense, which is very much felt with Germany's partners like France or so, which see that Germany focuses more on institutions and structures and less on output. So Germany should sort of refer to the operational experience of France and also the UK when it comes to European defence and really should advocate for a close security relationship with the UK after Brexit. Above all though, I think it's really important that Politicians in Berlin make a much larger public diplomacy effort at trying to explain the defense dimension of foreign policy and how important it is for Germany to take responsibility for European security to its voters. We've had quite disturbing numbers in a couple of surveys over the last couple of years. So according to a Pew Research Center survey, while 67% of Germans hold a positive opinion of NATO, 53% of Germans do not believe that Germany should honor NATO's Article 5 and actually use military force to defend an ally if it is attacked. At the same time, and related to that, 65% are still confident that the United States would come to their aid in any conflict with Russia. And... While 71% now consider that ensuring the security of Germany and its allies is the most important task for German involvement in international affairs, only 32% support an increase in defense spending. And those positions really are unsustainable. And it's up to politicians to lead the public on this issue. While at the same time, of course, think tanks and other experts must continue to foster debate with government officials.
0: So these suggestions sound like they might take some of the sting out of the issue and allow some progress on this front? And hopefully Germany will cast its vision further afield beyond its own borders.
1: And hopefully we'll have a government next (laughs) week.
0: That would help. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the CER podcast. And thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CER underscore
0: EU.